Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with John Stempian and John Lindstrom, editors of the new book, The Liberty Hyde Bailey, Gardner's Companion, Essential Writings. John Stempian teaches history in Lowell, Michigan, and served as the first director of the Liberty Hyde Bailey Museum from 2006 to 2012. John Lindstrom is a writer and doctoral candidate in English. He edited the centennial edition of Bailey's The Holy Earth. Liberty Hyde Bailey, who was born in 1858 and passed away in 1954, grew up on a farm in Michigan and went on to become Dean of the College of Agriculture at Cornell University and Chair of the Country Life Commission under President Theodore Roosevelt. Considered the father of modern horticulture, Bailey authored more than 70 books, published thousands of articles, and founded countless organizations. We spoke to John Stempian and John Lindstrom about Liberty Hyde Bailey's legacy, how they both became interested in his work and writings, Bailey's philosophy of what he called garden sentiment, and the valuable lessons that Liberty Hyde Bailey can teach us all today. Hello, John and John. Hello, this is uh, John Stempian. John Lindstrom, lots of Johns. There we go. So we're gonna we're gonna use John John S and John L from this point on. I'm John H or Jonathan. Uh, there's a lot of Johns in this podcast, um, but we're speaking to John Stempian and John Lindstrom because they are the editors of the new Liberty Hyde Bailey Gardener's Companion. It's officially out September 15th, um, and that will be the same date as an event at the Cornell Botanic Gardens in Ithaca, New York. If you're in the Ithaca area or Central New York area please come by. It's Sunday, September 15th at 3.30 to 5 p.m. at the Brian Nevin Welcome Center. It'll be an official book launch for this book. Um, so John S. and John L., please tell us uh, the backstory of how you got involved uh, with the life of Liberty Hyde Bailey. Um, so John S. here. So thanks. Uh, great to be here. Uh, it's interesting because Bailey's uh, life would later on intersect with most with my life and also John Lindstrom's life and bring us together. Uh, for me, where it started was in South Haven, Michigan. So in South Haven, Michigan, there's the birth home of Liberty Hyde Bailey. And it's a museum and it's on the National Register. I believe it was founded in the 1960s. It got onto the National Register, but it was founded in the 1930s when Bailey was still alive. Uh, for myself, I got connected to the museum just to do an internship. And when I went there, the Bailey Museum, his birth home, uh, the place where he grew up, his um, Greek revival home out in the fruit belt of West Michigan, uh, still intact there. I was able to do my internship there. Didn't know much about Bailey. Um, As an intern, though, the museum at that time was really a default history museum for all of South Haven. And so there was little, little, uh, Liberty Hyde Bailey there. There's some there, but most of it operated. If you want to think of going into the uh, old hardware store, that's <laughs> what the museum looked like. There was a lot of pieces and relics of South Haven's past, floats and jets and anywhere. Um, and there wasn't a lot of foot, tra- foot traffic. And so I did have some time on my hands. And I did notice on the shelf at this Liberty Hyde Bailey Museum, there were some books and it had his name on it. I said, well, this man did pretty well for himself. Look, he has a couple books published. Um, and so I decided to open up a couple of them. Little did I know that 
not only did he publish a couple books, he actually published 76 books. I think that's the count we have right now. Is that right, John L? 76 or 77, yeah. Yeah, and that was my introduction to Bailey. And uh, these books, of course, um, 1900s, and I was really surprised and really amazed what lay in between these covers of Liberty Hyde Bailey. Um, and what was the what was the book that so, turned you on? So the very first one was, yeah, was The Holy Earth, right? So I had this title, and I said, well, this is an interesting title. How can you walk away from something like this? And so I opened it, and I was expecting probably something more of a 1980s, 90s New Age mindsets about how spiritual and how wonderful the earth was. And so I was ready for that. Instead, opening the first chapter, it was an incredible reflection of how we were disconnected to the earth and how uh, we need to reconnect. So it was actually a really stark reprimand from the outset. And it really uh, set my gears in motion so far as what this man was standing for. And as a reader, I had to keep on reading. And so it's the holy earth for me that really showed that this man had a vision um, uh, and it needed to be shared too. And it still pertained to us today. And that's kind of how we ended up connecting uh, unintentionally. So um, in 2008, John Stempian uh, helped through the museum get that book back into print. By that point, he had been hired as director um, having done his internship there, and they wanted a part-time director to work there. It's a very small town, local history type place. And um, so they started collaborating with Michigan State University Press, and they got a new edition out in time for its 150th, the 150th anniversary of uh, Bailey's birth. Right. Um, and so there was a book talk, and at the time I was still an undergrad in college, um, this would have been 2009, um, and there was a book talk happening in my, so I grew up in South Haven, Michigan, never having heard of Liberty Hyde Bailey. Um, and this already is speaking to the fact that this whole project has become something of a recuperative project for us in terms of uh, Bailey being really a forgotten and overlooked environmental thinker from the early 20th century. Um, so I didn't know anything about Bailey. I was a college senior and my dad mentioned on the phone because I was working on some environmental writers. I was thinking about Thoreau and Whitman through the lens of literary ecocriticism for my senior honors project. And he said, well, have you heard about this guy, Liberty Hyde Bailey? He was a nature writer. There's a museum in South Haven um, because he had just heard about John Stempion's book talk. So I hadn't, um, I picked up a biography in the school library and started reading it and became really fascinated um, by the fact that somebody so who turned out to have been such a towering figure in his day came out of such a humble place at a time when South Haven was really considered the frontier, um, Western Michigan at that time. So um, anyway, I ended up getting roped into the museum. <laughs> um, I visited with my mom that summer. We tell this story a little bit in the preface to the book. Um, she, my mom's a fourth grade public school teacher in South Haven, and she was working on an outdoor learning center, um, starting one at her fourth, fifth grade school, North Shore Elementary there. 
And she was entranced by the fact that there was this environmentalist from our hometown. Let's go find out about it. We met John at the museum. The next year, I was an intern for the summer. The year after that, I was a part-time curator. Right. And the year after that, John steps down and I was co-director. So that's the way things move in small institutions like that. But it was, uh, it was a fun time. And um, the origins of the book come out of really the programming that John started at the Bailey Museum. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was a natural process. So I mean, going back to the museum, um, the museum had some things not in place, such as there was no membership in place, there was no web presence in place, uh, and ideally there was no programming in place. It was all based on foot traffic. And so one of the first things we had, I had to establish as a director is put together some programming. And, and so how do you get people down to a museum in the middle of summer? pretty easily you offer them food, right? And so we, we did lunch programs. So that's what you do. You cook up something, go, okay, we'll do, we'll call it brown bag botany. You know, use the alliteration here, throw that out. We'll have them bring in, um, people eat their lunches. It's really picturesque place. We'll bring them in. But then the problem for me became, well, what material do I use? Well, lo and behold, right there in the house are Bailey's books. And so from Bailey's books, all of a sudden I realized I had this incredible resource that I didn't need to create things whole cloth. That actually here it was, an ideal uh, setting here, his birth home with his writings to launch these free programs. And his writing, and we mentioned this in the book too, really uh, had a wonderful effect on the people that we read it to. Um, his words sound wonderful when they're read out loud. I, I noticed that about his, his prose style. And that was shared with audiences. And we had a wonderful reception with his writings. And so started using the writings and programming. Started replicating some of his uh, writings through the newsletter, the new uh, newsletter that we had launched too as well. And then a, a blog post and started sharing those. And so by the time my directorship was winding down, I still felt very connected to Bailey. I still wanted to do something. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting, all these garden writings that we use during these programs, boy, it would be nice if there was a book with them. And so I started that process of putting together um, the Liberty Hyde Bailey Gardener's Companion. And it was only later on, after a couple of years of this, that John asked about it, too, and where, where, where we were with it. That's fantastic. I mean, we'll get more into Liberty Hyde Bailey's life, but I just want to say that, yeah, these essential writings is in many ways the um, turning point in, in a new initiative that has been started that John Lindstrom's the editor of the Liberty Hyde Bailey Library, which will be bringing mm -hmm. back all of his titles uh, into, um, into the world. So this is a really exciting uh, time for both of you guys uh, with this new book and also for, for uh, fans and future fans of Liberty Hyde Bailey. So this is, this is yeah. a... Uh, uh, kind of an historic moment. Um, so tell us, uh, speaking of history, tell us about Liberty Hyde Bailey, this, uh, you know, some of the, the highlights of his life. I'll, I'll give a little bit and I'm going to tag team John on this. I think the thing that I find out, I approached Bailey early on as a historian. Um, I never grew a garden. I wasn't a horticulturist. I had to learn what that term was when I started working at the museum. Uh, but I approached him uh, through a historical lens. And of course, he was a figure during the progressive era. Um, he's lived 96, he had a really long lifespan, and so he's able to do some prodigious output of work. Um, born in 1858, you know, all the way up, uh, died on Christmas Eve in 
1954. Um, and I see through that the historians had a hard time putting the hook of who he was. You know, what do you call him? You know, was he a horticulturist? Yes. Was he a poet? Well, yes. Was he a philosopher? Well, yes. Right. And there are so many aspects uh, to Bailey that I think people have a hard time trying to group him in a certain position. And I think that's the grouping in itself, that um, he was a polymath. Um, he had so many aspects to his life that were different. Uh, just to make it more concrete, however, if you're in Cornell, you can't help but walk through the campus and see his name. So Bailey Hall, his name is on that. Um, he's the founder of the Dean of, of College of Agriculture for New York State at Cornell. So that's another uh, thing for him. Um, the Botanical Gardens that we're going to go to, um, he helped to establish that too as well at Cornell. Uh, there's also the Liberty High Bailey Conservatory on campus. So just locally, I mean, there is just an impression of thumbprint of the man, but also outside from Cornell, and I think, uh, you know, John can speak more to this, how he connected more broadly too outside of Cornell. Yeah, yeah um, and, and it's kind of interesting that Places where he's most remembered are probably Ithaca, um, East Lansing, where Michigan State is, where he was um, went to school and started out as a professor of horticulture, and then in West Michigan, um, where this museum is. And there's a tendency sometimes uh, to think of him as a local figure, and I think that's a mistake that we're trying to correct. Um, so he, it does start for him in South Haven. And the fact that he was born and raised on a small struggling fruit farm speaks to a lot of what would happen later in his life, I think. Um, so we tell a little bit of this story in the preface as well. But he, when he was at a very young age, um, his father was a farmer from Vermont who came and settled in Michigan. His mother was uh, born in Michigan on the frontier in a small rural community. And um, they settled in South Haven, which at that time only had, didn't really have any major commercial farming happening. Um, so they settled in 1856, uh, Bailey was born in 1858. Within four years, Bailey's mother died. Um, and that was a kind of important moment because she was remembered as a sort of artistic person and also an avid gardener. And at her, when she passed away, Bailey's father took him, this is the story that he would tell years later, out into the front garden and taught him to take care of this little patch of ornamental pinks, which are kind of a humble, small flower, um, brightly colored, popular on the frontier because they were hardy perennials. And so this little four-year-old started to get his hands in the dirt um, and, and tend these flowers and water them. Um, he says that Throughout the course of the rest of his life, every single year, he kept a garden. Um, years later, if he was traveling in China, he would, for the year, he would rent a garden plot somewhere and plant seeds that he had collected wherever he was. Um, he also became, as a young child, an avid botanist and naturalist of sorts. He got a copy of Asa Gray's Manual of Botany. Gray was a sort of powering figure um, an American botany at the time, and a proponent of Darwinian evolution. Um, and Bailey became a, um, for, what's the word for? Precocious. Precocious, thank precocious you. Precocious child. He's a precocious child. Yeah. Um, so he ends up going to college. Uh, he studies botany. Um, 
but really is interested in cultivated plants and in the actual act activity and practice of growing and raising and um, breeding plants. Um, and so he, he goes to study, he eventually studies with Asa Gray, that famous botanist who he's, whose botany he had carried around in the dunes of Michigan. Um, studies under Asa Gray for two years and then gets an offer from his alma mater, which was Michigan Agricultural College, one of the early land grant institutions that were founded to um, study what they called at the time the practical arts as well as the liberal arts. Um, and the offer was to be the first chair of horticulture and landscape gardening in the nation. Um, the idea that you would teach at the college level topics like horticulture, agriculture, farm-related things, that was pretty new still with the moral acts and um, agricultural education. So uh, Bailey went to his mentor, Asa Gray, who he had admired since he was a child, and said, um, you know, well, I think I'm going to take this job and teach horticulture. And Gray famously said, well, Mr. Bailey, I thought you were fitting yourself to be a botanist. And Bailey said, well, I think a horticulturist ought to be a botanist. And Gray's response was, yes, but he must also be a horticulturist. <laughs> With disdain, and, right? From yes, some disdain <laughs> in his voice. Um, and much of the rest of Bailey's career can be read as an attempt to bring together horticulture and botany. He published a really famous essay, um, which has not been published since the 19th century, but is in our book as an appendix, which was The Garden Fence in 1885-86, um, which established him, he's, he's remembered as the father of modern horticulture because in that essay he said, it's time for botany to jump the garden fence. Um, he wanted to bring practice of gardening and horticulture and the science of botany together so that farmers and horticulturists can learn from the sciences but also so that science could be made relevant to people's lives. Um, he writes in that essay, the line between theory and practice is relative. It exists and it does not exist. So Bailey publishes The Garden Fence. He starts publishing prolifically early in his career especially in farm and garden journals, which were very popular at the time. Um, and a lot of the materials in the book have only been published in periodicals previously. So a big part of this project was to scour those and bring together some of the most popular stuff because um, people loved reading Bailey. He's got this kind of poetic personal flair. And uh, I know we're gonna talk more about the garden sentiment, but this, idea that um, Bailey believed it was important not only to rural areas, but to democracy in general, to cultivate a love of the earth among the citizenry and a stewardship of local place and community. Um, and so this idea of bringing science and practice together, for instance, is part of a larger narrative about agriculture, um, the idea that every state should have a land-grant university dedicated to teaching the practical subjects related to ordinary people's lives that would be open to all students, like Cornell University. Um, Bailey only spends about three years at Michigan State before coming to Cornell, and there he becomes active as, I think for a while, a director of the experiment station 
um, pioneering the concept of university extension, that the university has an obligation to come out to the people, not only to spread information in a kind of top-down way, but also to collaboratively learn with the practitioners of the craft of farming and horticulture and agriculture and animal husbandry. Um, so this concept of extension, he becomes one of the most important early deans of the College of Agriculture, as John Stempion mentioned. Um, he even pioneers, he's considered by some people to be the father of rural sociology um, because he approached agriculture as, from, from a cultural perspective. Bailey was a founding thinker in the Nature Study Movement. He published a book called The Nature Study Idea in 1903. He started a nature study program at Cornell. Um, they hired the and first- The, the leaflets too, he published, right? Those nature study leaflets, right? Yeah, a big part of it was these, were these bulletins that were distributed around New York State and used in schools all across the state. Had a really big impact. Um, these were premium for the, for the programs at the museum very well crafted mm -hmm. and so and they're meant for the the local teachers and so you will find some of these also in our collection yeah he's able to write to children as well as to adults and the aim was always to encourage a love of the outdoors and of rural life yeah. um and then the country life movement comes out of that as well the country life movement was a pretty interesting movement uh, during the progressive era um and very controversial there are a lot of country lifers who um, were coming at this problem of urbanization and saying from kind of a top-down approach um, or a technocratic approach that we need to quote unquote uplift the country, right? This was a popular term at the time, uplift. Bailey started out using that rhetoric but actually later rejected it and said, rural people of America don't need to be lifted up by anyone, um, but they do need support um, in certain ways. There are, you know, social services being provided to urban people that aren't accessible to rural people. And that the country life movement should actually be a cultural, local, and ground up movement. And he was then appointed in 1907 or 8, I think, by President Teddy Roosevelt that had a national commission on country life, which is one of his most high profile roles. And they traveled all across the country collecting information at farmers meetings, um, where they'd have what they called listening sessions, hear farmers' concerns. And their main message was generally one of, um, well, let's think about how communities can organize and advocate for themselves. Um, so that was the Country Life Movement. He, uh, they produced a report which actually became very influential, the report of the Commission on Country Life. It was used by rural organizations for years, uh, decades afterwards. Um, and then in 1913, he retires from Cornell kind of early um, and says he wants to devote the rest of his life to the work that he wants to do and also to leisure. Um, so he, and for him that meant publishing many more books, <laughs> among other things. So he publishes The Holy Earth in 1915. That's the book that John found in the museum um, where he gives, makes, he, I think he frames this call to good stewardship as being the basis of all of these other reform efforts that I've been talking about. Um, there's the basic fact that we all depend upon the soil um, and that stewardship of the soil kind of grows culture around it. Um, 
he called for a sort of society of the holy earth in one of the books in a series of philosophical texts that followed from the holy earth in the, in the years following. And society of the holy earth is in our anthology as well. Um, it's a really beautiful little one-page call to action um, on behalf of the planet. And the Holy Earth actually would end up being very influential on the thinking of Aldo Leopold, author of Sand County Almanac, um, one of the major conservation texts in the 20th century. And then I guess the last thing is in his late life, he becomes a sort of globetrotter. And he, was, he would get a lot of headlines because in his 80s and 90s, he'd be going on solo expeditions to the tropics to right. study palm plants. He became obsessed with the palms because they were so misunderstood. And I think the best excellent. story was his 90th birthday, right? So Cornell had a, planned a huge uh, party for his 90th. The only problem is nobody knew where he was at. <laughs> they couldn't find you know, the, the man that they wanted to celebrate because he was out collecting palms. Um, the Caribbean. He actually yeah. found a new species during that time too as well. Um, but, but he came back later on, gave a wonderful speech um, about his experience and how his life was a total fulfillment of all of his dreams. Wow. Yeah. Obviously, it's hard to narrow all this down. I mean, this, this, this sounds a little bit like folklore, but I heard that one of his reputations on when he was teaching at Cornell was that he would be constantly um, talking and lecturing. So he would <laughs> he walked into a classroom, he'd be talking, and then he'd leave the classroom talking as well. He would constantly- Yes, that's, that's one of those anecdotes, else. yeah. That he was just so in the moment with that. Um, and then even at, uh, I think it was at Michigan State that, or Cornell, that he would bring in products like the pumpkin, like with the trails and the vines and everything, bringing that into uh, the lecture hall too as well. Yeah, or even though I like the other one that he was actually seen at Cornell campus, walking in the rain without an umbrella. And somebody uh -huh. like, Dean Bailey, you know, it's raining. You need an umbrella? He goes, no, I don't mind it. Well, the plants mind it. You know, don't mind it. We need rain. And he, just, he kept on walking, doing his business, which is, again, part of his philosophy. It's like, if your clothes get ruined in the weather, don't blame the weather, blame your clothing. All right? It's like, you should be enjoying yeah. the rain. That's great. That's great. So now you were talking about the philosophical uh, component of his work. One of the overarching themes in this new collection and the Liberty Hyde Bailey Gardener's Companion is his idea of garden sentiment, or he also calls it garden desire. Could you mm -hmm. tell us uh, and elaborate what, what this is? Okay, I want to share the, you know this one, I want to share, this is John Stemkin, the dream I had about this. This kind of dovetails <laughs> in the book a little bit. So uh, when I was just finishing up my directorship at the museum, I had this dream that we're at the Liberty Hyde Bailey Museum and we're in the basement of the museum and everybody's gathered there because we're there to celebrate Liberty Hyde Bailey. It might've been his birthday or maybe coming home, but we're, everybody in the museum and other notables are there. And we're waiting for the man of the hour to show up. And lo and behold, walking down the stairs, there's Liberty Hyde Bailey and he shows up and everybody's excited. Now, mind you, the man's been dead a long time ago, but in the dream, this is natural. So here he is. It's all great. There's Bailey, and everybody's shaking hands and saying hello to him. And I, of course, I see him. I say hello to him. And my wife approaches him, and she meets him for the first time. She goes, well, my husband's a big fan of yours, and I have to ask you a question. I haven't read any of your books, and I want to know what should be my first Bailey book. What would you recommend for me to read if I am going to read any of your books? Should I, should I, I remember her asking this in a dream, should I read The Holy Earth? Mm -hmm. And Bailey paused. He goes, you know, that's a really good book. 
However, I would want to suggest this. The first books you want to read are my gardening books. After you read my gardening books, then pick up the Holy Earth, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about, the philosophy I have in the Holy Earth. So start with the gardening books. Um, for me, I think that's part of the impetus of why you know, I went forward and started working with John to put this together. The idea of what, what is that about then? What is the garden sentiment then? What is that about? So it's the application of what he believed in that philosophy. It's that action of connecting uh, to this uh, holy earth. Um, and I think the way, the simple way to phrase it, what is the garden sentiment? I can tell you what it's not. Um, it's not thinking, well, why should I grow a garden and grow vegetables? if I can go to the farmer's market and get it cheaper there? What would be the use of that? Um, Bailey would answer, well, that's not the garden center. You do not garden for profit and loss. It's not based on that. Um, and then he would also say it's, it's a matter of loving the materials, but not being materialistic. Uh, that there is, in that action of gardening, there is a sanctity, there is um, a heritage that we have inherited by being here with these plants that we can interact with. And by interacting with them, we bring meaning to our lives through that interaction of beauty and seeing things as he says, growing because they must. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, to just to piggyback off of that, um, out of curiosity, because so the, if, if you read our explanation of the sections of the book, um, we use the term garden sentiment several times, and it comes from the first section of the book. And I did a search to see how many times it appears in the text. It actually only appears in one essay um, in the book, which is the essay titled To One Who Hath No Garden. Um, and I think it's interesting that the, the argument he makes there um, is that not everyone even needs to have a garden if everyone has access to growing plants um, and an appreciation for tender living things that depend upon the care of those around them to survive. I mean, in nature, right, um, you've got, it's, it's a different experience going into the natural world and observing plants where the vast majority never germinate, right? Um, in a garden, you've got a pretty small little seed packet, cast those to the wind, um, what are the chances that they're going to grow to maturity? But you have the sort of privilege as the gardener, as the steward of these living beings to see them from seed to flower or fruit. Um, and I think the appreciation for that process and the love of plants for themselves and for their own sake is what Bailey's getting at when he's saying, when he, when he describes the garden sentiment as the one thing he would have all members of society um, be possessed of. Yeah. And then, um, then also blowing up our ideas of what a garden is, right? And so mm -hmm. I think the first impression we think of a garden that somebody has some plot in the back of their house. Um, for Bailey, that wasn't so. Um, it, he says one potted plant in a tin can can serve as a garden as much as 30 acres could for somebody else. So yeah. it's, it's not defined by, you know, to say you called it ill-defined to me, you know, it's that a garden can be more than just acreage. It's, it's this uh, 
emotionality that we can bring to the plant. That's a beautiful concept. And, and you know, I live, uh, you know, in Ithaca, where it is easy to have access to the land, but there's millions and millions of people all around the world that are living in cities that, you know, if they, they, there are community gardens, obviously, but for a good chunk of humanity, that's the garden isn't possible. But I think right. that's beautiful that he, he's saying that this garden sentiment can be literally a potted plant. Whatever, wherever you have sunlight and plants can grow. That, that's all that, that's all you need. That's mm -hmm. great. So what are some valuable lessons like that, uh, that, that Liberty Hyde Bailey can teach us today? What are, what are some of the lessons that you guys see? Uh, I, I like the idea that, again, he stresses the idea of knowing your backyard first off. And by knowing the backyard, then you get to know the world, right? Yeah, I think he says in one essay, you know, if you want to be a botanist, you know, there are weeds and plants in your backyard. You say they're not interesting. Well, that's not their fault, right? Is mm -hmm. that you, you have uh, just at your, our fingertips the common. You know, the things that are very common, like the dandelion is a wonderful image that he uses and he meditates on, um, that much maligned dandelions, right? That they're beautiful flowers in themselves. And if we're able to see the common, be able to slow down um, in our lives, and again, um, love the materials not to be materialistic, that we can slow down, see what's in our backyards, and connecting through the common, uh, you can connect to a larger, you know, uncommon. Um, yeah. you get to see using the ordinary and connecting to the extraordinary um, is what we can benefit from and by doing so then we can see the world in a larger vista and they actually participate with a, with a broader vision just by seeing what's at our fingertips and the title of the book was almost Marvels at Our Feet, yes. um, which is the title of the, uh, the first essay in the epilogue, um, which is one of the last major kind of popular philosophical essays that Bailey wrote, I think, in 1940. Um, and this idea, I think for us today, and this is one of the reasons why Bailey's such a refreshing voice. Um, as a sort of environmental thinker and a nature writer, it's so easy for us to get overwhelmed by the major crises that we're hearing about every day. Climate change, um, trade wars, you know, fake news, quote unquote. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at some of the titles of Bailey's books, he was a macro thinker. You've got titles like The Holy Earth, Universal service. What is democracy? Um, you know, there. The, he he was he was definitely a global and actually um, planetary and sometimes beyond planetary thinker when he was situating, you know, the human place and realm of action. But he always comes back to this idea that the way that we get at these huge problems is always going to be local. At the end of the day, yeah. um, there's there's policy that can be changed um, and we need to be advocating for those changes and Bailey did advocate for those changes in his work in New York State for instance um, but the primary obligation is not necessarily to the tree in the rainforest that you can't get to to help 
um, the primary obligation is to the tree in your backyard. Um, and how, how are you using that space that you have some control over? We are talking about living in cities. I'm living in New York City right now as I'm working on a, a PhD program at NYU. And um, one of the things that I've wanted to do since I've been here is to just have some plants to take care of, partly because I'm inspired by Bailey's work. So we've got a little quote unquote window garden inspired by Bailey's tin can idea. Uh, growing some basil. We tried to grow some pinks from some old seeds. It didn't work. It was a helpful experiment. Um, I think that's, that's kind of Bailey's garden sentiment. We've got a, a little square in the sidewalk out front where there can be a tree, but there's just dirt there right now. So we've been talking to our landlord. How can we get a tree planted in here? We know it makes a big difference in dense urban centers to have greenery. Um, it gives you something to do and it keeps you from feeling powerless and helpless. When you know that a seed packet is going to cost you nothing um, and that you can grow something and take care of it. I think that's, I mean, that's the garden sentiment. It's also kind of the main lesson that comes out of this book for me anyway. That's great. That's great. Now you, you have compiled there's how many chapters are in here there's um, up in the 50s i believe yeah, yeah yeah so um and we're looking at uh almost 300 pages what are some of your favorite passages in the book mm. i i would say there's there's two of them um the general advice that launches the book what is wonderful it's dear to me just for the fact that this was the essay that i think really germinated the the whole enterprise that I opened up the book and there's this wonderful advice on growing plants and it was so fresh and new to read and so it's a wonderful way then to use that as uh, as another measure you know as thinking of musically another taking that intro um, another way to think about it, I'm a big Beatles fan so it's almost like putting together the best of the Beatles so this would be I would say the love me do of <laughs> Bailey, learning that in the book. So I have uh, fondness for that. Um, and then just to read out loud, I'll just, if I had to pick one to read out loud, I would say leaves would be my favorite one, just speaking of it. So those are my two. Mm. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I mean, I know. yeah, that general advice chapter. So this is the first chapter of one of Bailey's very nuts and bolts practical gardening manuals. And we didn't want to assemble a book like that, partly because advice changes, techniques change. Um, but it's telling that he's, it's the, the book's title is Garden Making. And he starts out with this chapter. So I think, can, can it, should I just read the first paragraph? Yeah, that'd be this, great. That'd be great. This, something. this gives you a little sense of Bailey's voice. Um, and we wanted to start with this partly because uh, it's, it's just so inviting. He writes, every family can have a garden. If there is not a foot of land, there are porches or windows. Wherever there is sunlight, plants may be made to grow. And one plant in a tin can may be a more helpful and inspiring garden to some mind than a whole acre of lawn and flowers may be to another. The satisfaction of a garden does not depend upon the area, nor happily upon the cost or rarity of the plants. It depends upon the temper of the person. One must first seek to love plants and nature 
and then to cultivate that happy peace of mind which is satisfied with little. He will be happier if he has no rigid and arbitrary ideals, for gardens are coquettish, particularly with the novice. If plants grow and thrive, he should be happy. And if the plants which thrive chance not to be the ones which he planted, they are plants nevertheless, and nature is satisfied with them. We are apt to covet the things which we cannot have, but we are happier when we love the things which grow because they must. A patch of lusty pigweeds growing and crowding in luxuriant abandon may be a better and more worthy object of affection than a bed of coleoses in which every spark of life and spirit and individuality has been sheared out and suppressed. Can I pick it up from here? Sure. Tag team. The man who worries morning and night about the dandelions in the lawn will find great relief in loving the dandelions. Each blossom is worth more than a gold coin as it shimmers in the exuberant sunlight of the growing spring and attracts the bees to its bosom. Little children love the dandelions. Why may not we? Love the things nearest at hand and love intensely. If I were to write a motto of the gate of a garden, I should choose the remark which Socrates made as he saw the luxuries in the market, how much there is in the world that I do not want. Wow, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. What a great way to introduce the book and open up the, the wealth of wisdom within. Thank you so much, guys, for sharing this. We've literally just scratched the surface, I know. <laughs> um, and for folks that are interested in learning more, please come uh, Sunday, September 15th uh, from 3.30 to 5 at the Cornell Botanic Gardens in Ithaca. If you can't, uh, obviously, if, if you're not local, um, pick up the book. It's available now um, at all bookstores and on the Amazon. Every, anywhere you look, just type in the Liberty Hyde Bailey Gardener's Companion and you'll find it. So thank you so much, John Stemping and John Lindstrom. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, Thanks Jonathan. Glad, Jonathan. Yeah, this was great. That was John Stemping and John Lindstrom, editors of the new book, The Liberty Hyde Bailey Gardener's Companion, Essential Writings. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on their new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>